Hello, and welcome to the ArborPod Detective Dendro series. Today's guest is Marnie DeMann in the case of the Lamentable Maples. This podcast is provided by the International Society of Arboriculture. After being away for a week at the ISA annual conference in Orlando, Florida, U.S., me and Conan were backlogged with calls for the rest of August. It always seems that when Coded and I were away, there was a surplus of calls. As the seasons changed, and after finally having caught up on the calls, we had a bit of free time. It was just as I was starting to relax that Coded came running to me. Oh no, he said. I completely forgot that my family is having a reunion next week. I've missed it for the last three years. With Coded's panic and the slowing of the season, I tried not to sound too disappointed when I pushed him to go. I really was a bit disappointed. After all, I would have to make my own coffee for a whole week. Later, when Coded returned, I heard all about his adventure. The family reunion had been grand, and the weather was fantastic. Not only was the reunion great, but he also managed to impress his entire family with his arboricultural problem-solving skills. There was, however, one case that had stumped him a bit, and he wanted my opinion on the matter. Coded then informed me he had signed me up for a diagnostic trip, and we would be staying with his relatives for a few days. The sun was setting when we arrived, and I couldn't help but notice the forest near Coded's family home, where he'd grown up. No wonder he loved being around trees so much. The forest by his house were composed of some truly spectacular trees. Their autumn color proved particularly stunning. We put off checking out the trees Coded's family was concerned about until morning, when the light would be better. It was nearly 11 a.m. when we awoke, so we rushed to get ready and head out to look at the trees. Coded grabbed his climbing equipment from the truck and we set out. A bit to my surprise, the trees we were going to look at were not in the front yard, nor were they in the backyard. As we started our short hike, I began to wonder where exactly we were going. But the view was nice, despite the drizzling rain, so I elected to keep quiet. We finally reached a stand of sugar maples, Acer Saccharum, with a few eastern white pines, Pinostrobus, interspersed. The overmature sugar maples had already lost most of their leaves, so I was a little bit disappointed with the view after what I had seen in the last day and a half. But upon our approach, I heard word of their concerns. The neighbors had been tapping the maples to make syrup for years, and the trees were in decline as a result. Coded had loved this forest as a child, climbing trees and making tree forts. I could see why he dragged me out here to look at the trees that were a little less urban than I was used to. These trees had sentimental value. As I looked around, something was a little bit odd. At first I thought it was that we could hear cars nearby. That's weird, I thought. Why had we walked in? But then I examined one of the sugar maples again. The thing that struck me was not the noises, but the lack of leaves on the trees compared to the ones we had driven by yesterday. I also observed relatively terrible job the neighbors had done tapping the trees for syrup. The three-eighths inch... 10 millimeter holes were all over the place. They were about the right size, but high and low, and certainly not properly spaced. There was even coarse sawdust left behind. In fact, some of these holes looked quite recent, perhaps too recent. As I looked to Coded, who was just about to set his line, I remembered feeling that something was not right. Wait, I said, did you do a tree and site inspection, or are you just eager to get back into these trees? Coded immediately realized his mistake and took a step back. Upon looking at the tree again, I realized that the maple syrup spile holes continued up far too high. 
Nobody climbs trees to tap for syrup, I thought to myself. I reached for my binoculars, only to learn that I had left them in my other coat. Coded saw me reaching and remarked that he didn't need binoculars anymore. His new phone had excellent zoom on the camera. With Coded's phone, we were able to take close-up photos higher on the trunk, as well as the branch tips, and then we zoomed in on them for further investigation. In addition to the 3-8-inch holes, there were also half-inch 13mm pits in the bark. The tree had also significant dieback, which we had missed between the height of the canopies, and perhaps not inspecting them as closely as we should have, assuming the change of season was playing a role in their less-than-leafy appearance. Much to Kodit's delight, his phone magically had network coverage in the forest. It enabled us to pick up an electronic version of one of my favorite books. We looked at it in miniature on the phone's tiny screen, but a bit to my surprise, my trusty, or so I had thought, book yielded no answers, and I was briefly stumped. May I stress, briefly. This was something I had read about recently, but never seen before in person. I looked at the ground, watching the soil drinking up the drizzly rain, not looking for clues, but looking for a way to break the news to Coded and his family. As Coded had suspected, the problem had nothing to do with the maple syrup tapping that had been going on for years, if not decades, but something much more recent. All the signs pointed towards an Asian longhorn beetle, Anaplophora glabropennis, infestation in the forest, an insect from Asia that is highly invasive in this part of the world. Coded, you can imagine, wasn't happy. The three-eighth-inch holes we found in the sugar maples were exit holes, and the half-inch pits in the bark were the female beetle's egg-laying sites. The female chews a hole down to the cambium and deposits an individual egg. Unfortunately, she doesn't do this just once. One female may lay 25 to 90 eggs, each in its own site or niche within a susceptible host tree. One of the largest concerns, I recalled, was that with this particular insect, the list of susceptible species was not a short one. While some trees, such as maples, including box elder and willows, are favored, horse chestnut, birch, apple, mulberry, poplar, cherry, pear, elm, and black locusts are also vulnerable. In this part of the world, that puts a large percentage of our urban trees and forests alike at risk. I thought back to the reading I had done on the beetle previously and remembered that the life cycle took from 12 to 18 months here. And adults are usually present from about July until October or early November in this region. It was time to go hunting, I decided. And somewhat worryingly, it didn't take me all that long to find an adult beetle. I suppose I shouldn't have expected it to take very long, given the number of exit holes present in the area's trees, but at approximately three-quarters to one and one-quarter inches, two to three centimeters long, shiny and black with white spots and banded antenna longer than its body, the Asian longhorn beetle was quite a striking insect. While it was exciting to see something new, it was also horrifying to realize the implications. As I explained to Codet, the larvae of the Asian longhorn beetle initially mine in the cambium, but bore deeper into the wood as they grow, spending the majority of their lives in the hardwood of the tree. The symptoms of the damage to the cambium include yellowing and wilting of leaves, 
and limb or even tree death in more severe infestations. To make matters worse, the damage the larvae do in the heartwood compromises the strength of the tree, increasing the risk of storm damage. The adults emerge through the 3-8-inch exit holes they chew, and these holes will commonly ooze sap. Sawdust-like frass can often be found on and around the trees as well. I pause, realizing that my list of the facts wasn't helping the situation. We decided to head back. The rain was picking up anyway. I informed Kodit's family that while the pesticide imidacloprid had been showing promising results recently, and may be used in conjunction with other control methods, the only eradication methods found to be assured so far within North America was to completely destroy all infested trees. Since the beetles cannot fly very far, almost a quarter mile, 400 meters, and often will only fly 55 to 80 yards, 70 to 75 meters, in search of a new host tree, buffers have even been created in some areas. These buffers are created by cutting down all susceptible trees around infested sites to prevent the beetle from spreading further. And yet, even then, the beetle spreads when people carelessly move around wood, whether it be firewood, shipping pallets, or anything in between. This particular infestation was likely spread by cars along the highway or on the other side of the property, possibly transporting firewood to the nearby campgrounds. I reminded Kodit's family never to move firewood. Kodit and I were able to report the sightings for the officials to deal with. The pictures we had came in handy, not only in providing documentation of what we had seen, but they were also geo-referenced by Kodit's phone, marking the exact location of the infestation. Unfortunately, there was little we could do beyond reporting the sighting and handing the matter over to the government department in charge of invasive species. The only good that came of the day was the rekindling of friendship between Kodit's family and the neighbors, now realizing that it wasn't the neighbors' fault the trees were in decline. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the ArborPod Detective Dendro series. You can earn CEUs for this podcast. Just log in at the ISA store, click on online CEU quizzes, and find the Detective Dendro quizzes. Stay tuned for the next ones. This podcast is provided by the International Society of Arboriculture. <laughs>